after we left Madison and we went to Pittsburgh, I mean, again, I was one of the only brown kids in a very white neighborhood. And Pittsburgh was much better than Madison. But I think that that year of being bullied, like shatters your confidence to a point where you just have a hard time assimilating after that. So I had a pretty hard middle school and high school experience. You're listening to the MILF Podcast. This is the show where we talk about motherhood and sexuality with amazing women with fascinating stories to share on the joys of being a MILF. Now here's your host, the MILFiest MILF I know, Jennifer Tracy. Hey guys, welcome back to the show. This is MILF Podcast, the show where we talk about motherhood, entrepreneurship, sexuality, and everything in between. I'm your host, Jennifer Tracy. Today on the show, we have Paria Hasori. Paria actually came to me through Tembi Locke, author of from scratch, whom I just fell in so in love with, not only reading her book right before I met her, but then when I met her, I fell in love with her. And then a couple of weeks later, we were at an event together and she said, hey, I met this incredible mom, this woman, and I think she'd be great for your show. And I said, great. And so she hooked me up with Paria. I went to Paria's home and I got to learn about her story. And it's just remarkable. Paria is a mother of three. She's a pediatrician here in Los Angeles. Two years ago, her middle child came out as transgender. That was her own journey. And you'll hear her talk about that um, in our interview. Um, And now Paria is using her voice to spread awareness and be a trans rights advocate. And she's writing a memoir called Found in Transition about her own evolution during her daughter's transition. It's She's incredible. She's just so incredible. So I'm just so honored that she made the time in her busy schedule to talk to me and to be on the show. And what an important story. What an important story to tell. So this is the last week in August. I feel like such a broken record because I say this all the time, but I just can't even believe it. So this month's give uh, was and still is Every Mother Counts. Again, you can find a link to them on my page, milfpodcast.com and donate to them, get involved somehow. They're doing amazing things helping mothers everywhere get the care that they need for prenatal birth and postnatal care that is so lacking in so many countries. Also, this episode is brought to you by Clutch Gifts. Clutch Gifts is a modern personal gift solution designed to enrich your relationships and simplify your life. So it's an online gift boutique that will curate your gift for your person and deliver it to them and make it fabulous. So my two friends, Tracy and Molly, started this company. It's a beautiful company. They have excellent taste. I can't recommend it highly enough. Um, Each clutch is built around sommelier-selected small production wines and obsessively curated small treasures that work together to tell a story of celebration, delight, and good taste. Whether an expression of true love, peace, gratitude, or congratulations on a job well done, there's a clutch gift for anyone lucky enough to be on your list. And trust me, if you get one of these and give it to someone, they're going to be blown away. Not only that, but Tracy and Molly have generously offered my listeners 15% discount using the code MILF15 through September 30th, 2019. So I highly recommend getting on there and shopping. It's so fun just even to browse around their site at clutchgifts.com. 
There'll be a link to that on the show notes page. Um, Also on the bottom of my website, there's all the sponsors that I have. So you'll see them there and you can easily find them on my website. So enjoy that. But for right now, please enjoy my conversation with Paria Hasuri. Hi, Paria. Hi. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, thank you for doing this. I'm um, I'm so honored. Like I'm to, honored to be in your home. I'm honored to meet you. Well, it's great for me to do this. I've, I'm really excited to yeah. do it, and excited that we're doing this in person and yeah. sitting face to face and so having nice, a conversation. Right? Yeah. Isn't that so rare now? Uh, it is really rare. So yeah. yeah. Good. Yeah. I know. I'm honored. So let's start from the beginning of you. So where were you born? I was actually born in Baltimore, Maryland, uh, but when I was three, my family is originally Iranian, and when I was three, we moved back to Iran, and then we came back when I was 10 years old. So, And what was the impetus to move back when you were three? Jobs? Actually, my parents had come here temporarily. My father is a neurologist, so he was doing his residence. He had come to the U.S. just to do his residency training, and then when it was over, they went back. And then um, there was a like, Iran-Iraq war and all this stuff basically right. caused them to come back. So when they were originally here, it was just for, they weren't planning to stay. It was just for my dad to do his residency. And I happened to be born during that time. Got it. Um, and so then, do you have dual citizenship? Uh, I do have dual citizenship, although the U.S. doesn't recognize dual citizenship with Iran. But of course, <laughs> yeah. of course. But so and so, I'm the only one in my family who was born, and in, in my you know parents between my parents' three kids who was born here, and actually my U.S. citizenship sort of helped them leave again to help them be able to get back to the States after the war. So that actually worked out. Was a godsend, (laughs) right. So you moved back again. How old were you when you moved back? So I was, we moved back when I was 10. I lived in Madison, Wisconsin for a year. And that's because my, when we moved back, my mom had a sister who lived there. And so that was the only place we knew to go. And then my father got a job in Pittsburgh. So I actually grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania for most of my formative years from 11 to mid to late 20s. What was that like, Pittsburgh? That's a whole, whole other thing. So, I mean, Pittsburgh now is probably a lot better than when when I lived in Pittsburgh. But And um, what was it? I'm sorry, I didn't mean yeah, to interrupt you. Yeah. What was it like specifically growing up as an Iranian Little girl. Yeah. Am I saying that correctly? Yes. Okay. Correct. Yeah. An Iranian little girl in a family. Yeah. You know that was expats from. Right. Yeah. What was that like at that time? I'm guessing in the 80s, 90s. So the the year that uh, we we moved back in 1983. Oh wow. Um. So it was actually just shortly after there was a whole Iran hostage crisis. So they. So the one year that I lived in Madison, Wisconsin was fifth grade. I moved back to fifth grade. Um, I was severely bullied that year. It was pretty terrible. And that actually really has impacted me my whole whole life. I mean, you know, so after we left Madison and we went to Pittsburgh, I mean, again, I was one of the only brown kids in a very white neighborhood. And Pittsburgh was much better than Madison. But I think that that year of being bullied, like shatters your confidence to a point where you just have a hard time assimilating after that. So I had a pretty hard um, middle school and high school experience. And it's hard enough. Yeah. But add that to it. I mean, and how about your brother? You had a brother and sister? I have two sisters. Two sisters. 
How did they fare? I did somehow the worst. My older sister is a couple years older than me. So she was a, just a little bit more secure as a person, I think, when we got here. And my younger sister was only two when we came here. So she, I think she had an easier time. They both had certain difficulties, but I, I probably I had the You landed time. right when kids start to be the shittiest. Right. I mean, right. really. Like, right. I have a 10-year-old boy. Right. And... Uh, he's. I'm very fortunate yeah. that he's in a very small school where the classes are very small yeah. and the teachers just do not tolerate any BS. Yeah. But I can see these kids. I'm like, God, they're mean to yeah. each other the way they... Yeah. So, yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. And especially back then yeah. where there was just so much less right. awareness and, you know, right. at that time politically. And so, wow. So did that kind of make you a little more inverted than you had originally been? Uh, it definitely did. Inverted. Yeah, it, it, yeah. <laughs> it definitely did for a lot of years. And then I think in college, I sort of really made a conscious decision towards the end of high school that I was going to reinvent myself for college. Yeah. And I did that. Um, and I think even though I did that, there's a part of me that's always sort of carried that the, just the insecurity of what happened in the yeah. past with me. And honestly, that now I'm 46. It really took until after 40 for me to get over all that. <laughs> in the last couple of years, I probably came to terms with it. And, and I think I finally was forced to put it to rest in the last couple of years. And actually, I mean, I guess we'll get into this, yes. but what forced me to put it to rest was... Um, so, you know, I'm I'm writing a book about my, and it sort of weaves my own experience with my middle child, my daughter's experience. Um, and so I think, you know, my, my middle child, who's now almost 16, but she came out as transgender as 13, at 13. And when you have been on the outside and, you know, bullied and, and experienced being an outsider, the worst thing that can happen is for your child to be someone that you think is going to be the absolute worst outsider currently in the United, yeah. <laughs> you know, targeted, instant, literally targeted. You know? Yeah. And so it took me a while to accept it. And I realized that part of not accepting it was I was so scared for her and I was parenting her with fear instead of with love. And I finally had to, you know, come to terms with the fact that I was projecting all my own fears about my difficulties onto her and thinking, well, hers is going to be 10 times worse than mine. So I just felt frozen, <laughs> you know? So as she sort of went through her transition, I finally ha had to grow up yeah. at, in my, at 45, you know, yeah. to land where I am, you know, today. Absolutely. So, yeah, uh, I can relate to that. I mean, I have, this is totally different and, and on a different level, but I have anxiety and depression and my son is now, he has anxiety and some panic stuff. And there's nothing like raising a child through a difficulty to, to make you look at your own shit. Right. You know? right. Absolutely. So yeah. um, I can only imagine what that was like for you both, you know, and your whole family. So, so let's talk a little bit about that. So what was the what was the beginning of that like? Like, let's talk about, so you have three children. I have three kids, yeah. One is um, just graduated high school. He's going to go to NYU in the fall, awesome. which I'm very excited Yay, about. because huge. I love New York, so yeah. nothing better visit. than me yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> than getting to go back and forth between LA and New York, so that's great. Um, and then I have my middle one, she, um, and she Whom I just is, met. Yeah. Yeah. So 
or she was the one she was already up the steps on okay. the balcony. Yeah. yeah. I think you met my youngest was at the okay. door. Um, and so she is starting her junior year. And then my youngest is starting eighth grade. Oh, got it. So I have three. Um, they're, I guess, almost 18, almost 16, and almost 13. Wow. Um, wow. Yeah. So my middle one, my daughter, she came out when she was 13. But part of sort of why I started writing a book um, is that she had actually zero, what I would consider signs of being transgender before yeah. she was 13. Yeah. So that when she did come out, my husband and I were completely blindsided and shock and then denial and we thought it was just an attention getting phase and you know all of this and so later on um and especially for me i'm also a pediatrician and there was this part of me that couldn't accept that as a pediatrician and a mother i would have no clue that i you know what's going on with my child and sure. that i would be blindsided by something so i just thought it was trying to get attention or a phase or confusion or something like that um, because she didn't have any of the signs usually you would tradition you know you would traditionally associate with being transgender which would be you know wanting to do opposite traditionally opposite gender yeah. things when you're you know younger like sure. three four five six uh, but she you know she never wanted to grow out her hair or yeah. play with dolls or yeah. take a dance class or yeah play with her sister's, younger sister's toys, or, you know, any of the things that I would have thought would be signs. Sure. And the, the other thing would be that, you know, a lot of times you'll hear stories about trans kids in the media who are coming out later and they'll say, well, I kind of knew, but I just didn't tell anybody. So even if there weren't signs, they felt that they knew from be beforehand. Mm. Um, and she really didn't know until she started puberty. And then as this happened to me and I started really forcing myself to research and learn. And, you know, I learned that f about 50% of trans people don't really present until puberty or later, and that they don't have any signs when they're little kids, or not what we think are typical signs. Right. And that really, it isn't until their body starts going through puberty that suddenly this doesn't feel right. Um, and that before puberty, they might be perfectly, you know, fine and right. happy, and you may not know it. Right. And then I started going to a support group for trans families. And the more I started hearing about other stories of kids who didn't have signs when they were younger, the more I was frustrated that these stories weren't out in the media, that mm. most of the stories out in the media are about people who present when they're toddlers or five yeah. or six. Yeah, And I felt like a big part of my denial and a big part of other parents that I would see that were having a hard time accepting it is because they hadn't seen these other sets mm. of, you know, kids and young adults. Yes. Um, and they hadn't been exposed to it and the, their stories weren't really being told. Yes. Um, so that's when I sort of started just telling our story and writing about it a little bit and then decided to write a book and just, you know, just to increase the number of different, the type of different narratives that are out there. Uh, because there isn't one way to be trans there isn't what you know one way to present as as trans. There's so many ways, and so that's so that's here we are. Uh, that's incredible. <laughs> yeah. That's so inspiring. Yeah. So, what was it along this journey that sort of as you as you were just saying, you know, you you were shocked. Your husband was shocked, and you, you guys weren't convinced that it was real. What happened along the way to sort of shift you into realizing, oh, she's she really means it. There was probably about six months of 
denial. And then it got to the point where you really couldn't. She was sort of escalating things in, you know, in terms of just going experimenting with yeah. her clothing more and, and going for it. And then she was also, you know, depressed because we weren't accepting it. And so, you know, for every parent who's going through this, there comes a point where you have to really look at your child and, and think, I mean, there was a point where I had to ask myself, I came to the realization that I, if I kept continue to be in denial, one day I would get some horrible phone call that she's done something to herself. And so it was like, am I going to sit around and wait for that phone call or am I going to take action and do something? But I think what really, so one, just the fact that things were progressing and there was, there was no ignoring it. Uh, but really what helped me the most was going to a support group for families of trans kids and hearing other, I, I, at a certain point, it didn't matter what my daughter told me. I had to hear what other mothers and parents had to say and hear other mothers and parents repeatedly say the same story. Yeah, my kid, my kid didn't have any signs until they were 15. It came out of the blue. If I rack my brains about their past, there was nothing, you know, there. And repeatedly hearing those stories and seeing that we're not the only ones who have this yes. story. Yes. Is really what ultimately changed yeah. things for me and made me say, well, if all these other people who look like involved, intelligent, yes. <laughs> you know, regular yes. caring parents were blindsided, you know, it's it's not just me and I need to start actually listening to my kid. Yeah. And I really think that there wasn't really that much more she could have told me. I had to hear other yeah. mothers. Yeah, that makes so much sense. That makes so much sense. And it I think it's that way just for me, it's been that way from the beginning of motherhood with everything. Like I felt like I was just thrown into a pit with my baby and really and I didn't know what I was doing. And I would always that's why I call the podcast moms I'd like to follow. Because anytime I had a thing, I would call up a mom I respected and say, I'm clueless. How do I do this? So I think that's so important. And where, you know, for our listeners who may be going through this, where can they find this kind of resource? Well, fortunately, you know, there's so much information online. I mean, in the Los Angeles area, uh, transformingfamily.org is the support group for uh, parents of um, where you trans can go to families and, and they have a monthly meeting. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure they have it across the U.S. Yeah. I mean... Uh, not name transforming family, but other there has to be support groups and resources okay. across the. I mean, maybe, maybe in some of the smaller um, states or. Yeah, they may not know, have reached there yet. Yeah. But we'll. But, well, what yeah. we'll do is, I have an amazing show notes writer, Kevin, and he and I can research it and just find. We always add things like that in the show notes. So if you're listening, you know, we'll add the link that Paria just mentioned, and then we'll add some other resources to find because I think that you bring up such a brilliant point is that what helped you feel less alone in this and like more at peace with it was finding other families finding going through the families, same thing. Right. Yeah. I mean, the National Center for Transgender Equality is a huge resource and they can probably connect people with support groups and across the U.S., yeah. But I'm sure, you know, ho yeah. hopefully there's, yeah. there's, <laughs> you know, there's yeah. a networking you yeah. know, system. But, Absolutely. Yeah. Wow. So then you started writing about it. Yeah. And you started talking about it. Yeah. And your daughter was supportive of that, I'm yeah. assuming. Yeah. My daughter, I mean, I had to sort of okay everything with her, obviously, before it happened. So she knew 
exactly what I was going to be writing. And, you know, I wrote a couple of articles, told her what I was writing first. Even with my book, you know, I told her this is going to be the time frame of my book. I'm going to start it on this day and end it on this day. And I'm not going to go past this day because then the rest is sort of your story, whether you decide to tell, you know, or not. So I really started it on the day she came out and ended it on the day she had her uh, legal name and gender change. So it's just a very, it's like a 17 month period. There's so much I could include from after that, but I just made the decision I was going to stop it when she had her legal name and gender change um, so that the rest, she can decide one day if she wants to tell or not, but that it was really more about my journey during her transition and how I went from complete denial and grief and devastation to not just accepting it, but really thriving with what's happened. Yeah. And I mean, as you are as evident in everything that I've seen and that you've shared with me before the podcast, like really celebrating this. Uh, yeah. 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 I mean, I think it's so powerful what you can do if you just decide to <laughs> open your mind and change your mindset about how you use these. And I think, you know, the biggest thing for me is, you know, just fear about what is her future going to be. And I've just had to stop living in fear. You know, I just had to. Yeah. I mean, I still have some fear and worry. I I used to worry that, you know, maybe she would end up alone or not find someone. And that I don't worry about at all anymore. She has so many friends and, you know, young people are so amazing (laughs) these days. Yeah. She actually, since she came out, she has so many more friends and I have yeah. zero worry about that. Yeah. I still have some worries about her safety. I'm a little more cautious with those things, you know, sure. like she'll take um, the public bus to go places and I don't let her take it after dark. I don't put her in a lift alone. You know, it's, I, I take a little extra <laughs> precautions with her that I didn't with my older one. Sure. But so I still have a little bit of the safety fear, but I'm not in any way worried that she will ever be lonely or not find, you know, she has friends and I'm not worried about her finding a partner one day or any of that. Like that is not even the tiniest bit of a concern. And you probably know a lot more about these stats, but I would imagine that Los Angeles is probably one of the best places to be as far as a community, trans community. Yeah. LA is great. Uh, Obviously, San Francisco yeah. is great. Portland and Seattle are actually on this oh, yeah. on this, I can imagine. this yeah. side really great. I think Seattle has a huge community. Yeah. Um, so yeah. yeah. I mean, so great that you guys are here and really central and I think, you know, hopefully for me growing up, you know, I grew up in Pittsburgh. I consciously made the decision that I would move out to Los Angeles one day. You did? You always knew? Well, yeah. So I used to, I had an aunt who lived here and I used to visit her. And every time I would visit LA, I would feel so comfortable because it was like a melting, you know, melting pot and there was so much diversity. And so- You weren't the only woman of color or child of color. Right. So I moved to LA, you know, I made a conscious decision that I'm going to move to LA and have children in LA and that's where I'm going to live. Hopefully there's a day where it's like, we don't have to be- limited. You know, I don't want her to say, well, I mean, when it comes time to it, so it's college is only a few years away. So when it's time for college, we are going to only be looking at cities where I know she's going to find a support, you know, a network. And luckily there's so many colleges in all of those places. Yeah. So, but you know, hopefully there's just like, 
There's a day where people who live wherever they live. Exactly. Don't have to (laughs) think about that. Don't have to think about those things or, you know, that you can just live anywhere in the U.S. and and blend in and have a good support network. I don't think we're that far. I mean, 2020 election, please, God, let it be positive. (laughs) Um, But I don't I don't think we're that far. I do think our kids kids could see that. Right. I really do think that I do, too. And I mean, I know I live in a bubble. I've been living in West Hollywood for 20 years. My kid has grown up knowing how to name everything. You know, there's no, there's no, what's gay? What's trans? Like he's known that since he could speak. And, you know, so I feel very fortunate in that regard because we're white as white gets. And if we were somewhere else, you know, he wouldn't see anyone else that looked any different than he does. So, um, yeah, I can only imagine, but that's... That's just so remarkable. And I can't wait for your book. Oh, thanks. It's so amazing. It's not yeah. easy writing a book. Uh, no. <laughs> no, it's but not. But you're doing it. Yeah, yeah, that's so great. Did yeah. you always know you wanted to be a pediatrician? Um, you know, I think with a, with a lot of immigrants, you you get sort of pushed towards a professional track. So my father was a physician. I was good in math and science. And so I just, I sort of assumed that I would just become a doctor because there was a certain, I felt a certain amount of expectation to become one. Yeah. It's interesting because now I think about a lot, you know, I think when you're like in your, a woman in your forties, you're reevaluating your whole life. Sure. Oh yeah. (laughs) So I think a lot about at what point did I make active decisions in my life and did I actively choose to become a doctor? And I don't really think that I did. I do think that I actively chose to become a pediatrician. Like once I, went through medical school and started doing my rotations. I always loved kids. I mean, I grew up, all I wanted to be was a mother, mm. and which would really frustrate my own mom because she, she wanted, you know, she just, she all she wanted was like her, all her kids to be professionals, you know, because um, she had dropped out of grad school once she got pregnant with me, you know, so of course you, you want for your kids what you didn't complete. But once I got to medical school and started doing my rotations, and I mean, I already loved kids, and I knew it was I was either going to be a pediatrician or not not be a doctor. Interesting. Yeah. And I think, you know, when I love kids, and I really love talking to other parents. I mean, I think being a pediatrician is just a lot of like hand holding and oh. reassurance. Yes. To parents of. Oh. You know, I mean, you're doing great, absolutely. whatever you're doing. Our, I love our pediatrician yeah. also, um, Dr. Kramer. Oh, yeah. You know her. Yeah. Um, and I just thank goodness for all the times I would just call and be like, hey, you know, when yeah. he was, especially when he was a newborn, yeah. I just felt so inept. Yeah. And she would just reassure me and yeah. he's fine. He's getting enough milk or whatever yeah. it was. Yeah. But it's a really important role. Yeah. So how long have you been practicing? 17 years. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's and kind of crazy that it flies sure. by. It, it doesn't it? Yeah. It, I mean, yeah. yeah, it really does. So a long time. So your oldest is 19? 18? Uh, almost 18. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So I got, I was, I had him during my last year of residency. Okay. Got it. Yeah. Okay. Wow. So, yeah. You were young. You yeah. started young. Yeah. I was 28 when I had yeah. him. Which so, is yeah. young now by yeah. today's standards. Yeah. At I mean, that time, it, we were living in Cleveland and it was you know, I was not necessarily a young, a young mama mom. at that I time. Know. It's crazy. But now I see 28-year-old moms once in a while. Like, I rarely know, do I right? see a mom in her 20s anymore. And when I do, I'm like, oh, my gosh, this person's a baby having a baby. I know. Isn't that <laughs> yeah. funny? And so, what do you attribute that to as a physician or just as a person? <laughs> like, I mean, because just because you see it you're yeah. day in and day out, yeah. what do you attribute that age? 
Because it's gotten later and later. Though. Well, I think it's taking, it takes longer to just, you know, figure out who you are, go to school. I mean, just getting through school, putting yourself through school, then, yeah. you know, figuring things out. And then I think also just people are pursuing their passions and interests yeah. more before having children right away, which is great, yes. you know? Yes. I think you either do that first and then you have a kid or you don't and you have kids and then you're suddenly in your 40s and you're like, wait, where where am I in this? And you're, yeah. you know, you you, yeah. you do it, you know, and, and you try to figure it out yeah. you know, later. Because you yeah. can't really do it right after you have the kid. No, you, <laughs> you know? can't. Like, no, you can't. You are in that thing, you know, whether you're a stay-at-home mom, which I hate that phrase. I wish we'd come up with a new phrase. Because there is no stay yeah. at home. There's no, no there staying is no, at home. No, no. Not like home is like bonbons and no, furry slippers no. or something. Right. But And how did this experience shift your perspective as a pediatrician? It really shifts your perspective on everything. Yeah, of course. But I think even as a pediatrician, we certainly don't train pediatricians to on about gender and the spectrum that gender do you think on. that's going to change now? Uh, just in the last, so it's kind of funny. I have a, I have an op-ed coming out in the LA Times on Wednesday, I think, about this that I just Ooh, wrote. Okay, I can't wait. I'm going to repost. Just it. in the just September of 2018 was the first time the American Academy of Pediatrics released a statement on how to approach transgender kids wow. and to treat them in a gender-affirming approach. September of 2018 the first AAP policy statement. Wow. Hopefully now, in just in the last couple of years, maybe we're starting to provide a little bit of that training. Um, but but I mean, that's a, but yeah, that's a long way to go. And who, you know, I'm sure we're probably maybe doing it better in certain cities, you know, than, than other, uh, than other places, but there's a long way to go. There's a lot you know, a lot to learn. Yeah. I mean, I'm constantly still trying to read and, and learn. One, I just sort of look at children differently and how much we impose gender roles on them without, you know, without even realizing it. Yeah. And then, you know, you just look at just families differently, you know, how, whatever it is that a family's going through, um, navigating difficult decisions and walking through difficult decisions. I mean, I think it certainly it's going to, you know, affect me in, in that way. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah. Like once your child's a teenager, for example, you know, you, most pediatricians will speak to the child alone, you know, and so they'll spend a little alone time with the teenager just when they go for their routine checkup. And that's sure. usually when we're asking them, you know, like, who are you, you know, attracted to and, you know, are they being safe and what are they doing and things like that. I mean, really adding in like a simple question, like, do you feel comfortable in your body? You know, you yes. don't, you know, just things that we don't weren't taught ask. to ask and don't ask, you know, and so it's made me aware of a lot. Well, of and just things, you're you know? making me think about all the ways that, I mean, I, uh, I think I'm a pretty conscious person, but obviously I have um, implicit bias and well, two examples. One is kind of a silly example. We were buying shoes the other day and he found these high tops and they were pink. And he goes, I want these ones. I said, okay, great. And the shoe lady looked at me and I looked at her and I was like, yeah, it's great. It's fine. Like she was looking at me for an okay. And I thought it was so interesting. And then he tried them on, they fit. And he was like, I love these. I was like, cool, we'll take those and these other ones. And then he was running around the store and she said, you know, 
I just have to tell you that I think it's really cool that you let him buy those shoes. I said, what do you mean? She said, most parents will not allow their child to buy a color shoe that does not identify with their gender. And it was something that is seemingly small, but like to be told, no, you can't wear that color or, you know, you can't put your hair this way or, you know, by your parent. I mean, that's huge. And so much worse worse for boys. We don't let boys express themselves in any way. I mean, we little boys are the sweetest things ever. And somewhere between being a little boy and being an adult, we just shut everything down yeah. in them. You got to be macho. You got to yeah. be uh, yeah. I mean, it's like, I don't know how we do it, but we do it. I mean, you know, not to generalize, but, I, you know, little boys are often so much sweeter than little yeah. girls. And yeah. that somewhere something changes and they pick up the message, like, you know, that they can't. I'm not allowed you know, to be soft they, anyway. They can't be I mean, soft. They, they can't even, they can't even, they can't express themselves. I mean, yes. you know, girls, at least if they you know, want to be a t- whatever a tomboy, you know, is and, you know, just n- not wear dresses yeah. and cut their hair and wear shorts and t-shirts. I mean, we sort of encourage it yeah. some, you know, yes. um, That's they're, they're socially much more, yeah, you know, they're allowed again. to yeah. express themselves a lot more, but yeah. boys are not allowed to express themselves yeah. at all. Um, and it's really sad. Yeah. And so. it's everywhere. I mean, it really is even in the most kind of socially aware climates. I mean, I was at this, my son was at a uh, elementary school before he was at Westmark, which is a special, I was just about to tell you, it's a specialized school for learning difference kids. And um, because he was diagnosed with dyslexia in second grade and really struggling. And then we found this school and it was just such a godsend. But we were at this little school called the Oaks in Hollywood. And um, they're pretty progressive and very socially aware of social consciousness. And you know, even in that, you just realize how much implicit bias we all have and how much stuff we put on, you know, myself included, you know, but it's just so nice to start seeing some more awareness around these things and support where it's like, no, just, just life's hard enough. <laughs> just to wear what you want, do your hair how you want, do whatever activity makes you feel good. Like, now, how did your family deal with this? My other two kids didn't miss a beat. I mean, you know, again, it's kids are amazing. Um, So they were just like, okay, my older one, my son, he, he was just like, okay, well, I kind of already knew, you know, I had sort of figured it out because from the time she came out till maybe it was maybe nine months before we really told them she came out to us first and, you know, all this stuff. But my younger one, she had first got a little she actually first got excited because she was like, oh, I'm going to have a sister. And then and then she realized she was going to lose her brother. And you kind of saw this wave of emotions go through her for a day or two. And then it was all it was all fine. Yeah. Um, my parents, I was petrified to tell my parents. And they were surprisingly like, okay. Like, uh, you know, I are mean, they still soon, in Pittsburgh? They um, retired and moved to Calabasas a few years oh, ago. Oh, great. So they're close so by. So they're close oh, by. But that's nice. I had been... Delaying, oh, I bet. telling because I would as make the assumption yeah. again. I'm making the yeah. assumption that they're probably a bit more traditional. I mean, my parents are actually both pretty liberal, but okay. it's still just culturally not something sure. you're very exposed. To. I mean, sure. they're just older. I mean, sure. they're in their different time. Yeah, seven. Yeah. You know, my dad is in his seventies, and my yeah. mom is almost seventy. Yeah. You know, kind of thing. But I mean, as soon as I told my mom, she was like, "Well, okay, so it's." that's fine. We're going to figure this out, you know? And I mean, I think, and they were just very support. And my dad, 
like within, you know, two days had researched everything. I mean, I was still in denial and he had sort of researched, you know, everything and was trying to, you know, figure things out. And, yeah. you know, well, I think- He's a scientist. He's a man yeah, of science. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, my mom, she thought that, you know, maybe it would be easier if she waited till like college to come out because she was just worried, you know, course, that it's yeah. difficult to come out in high school. I was so surprised by how, I mean, we are so lucky. I have to say, I can't even imagine- what it would be like. Cause you know, I, I mean, all my friends, I didn't have a single friend that I, I didn't have anybody I was worried about telling. Like that was never the issue. The issue was I'm worried about my child. The issue was never, I'm worried about my community, my friends, my coworkers. The only person I did worry about was my mom. <laughs> and apparently I didn't need to, you know, I didn't need to worry about her. So we were really lucky. I mean, cause I see other families that their friends aren't supportive or their family members are, aren't supportive, or you have two parents who together, one is in agreement and one is not. And then you're trying to, you know, go and get medical treatment and both parents have to be on board when they have, you know, and then you're getting courts involved. And I mean, there's, you know, so much that can happen in this kind of scenario. And we were fortunate in many ways, one being that we just had supportive friends and family from the very beginning. And also fortunate in that, you know, a lot of the costs associated with the transition um, are still not covered by insurance. Um, and it's not a financial hardship for us, which I realize how incredibly lucky we are. You know, it's not altering our lifestyle significantly. <laughs> I mean, that is huge. I mean, for so many people, they just, they can't afford yeah. care. Yeah. Um you know, certain things are covered, but it's not easy. Yeah. Um, you know, and it's not easy to get coverage for a lot of things. So I, we, you know, we've been as lucky as we can yeah. be, you know, in terms of the only, the, the really, the stress has just been the coming, you know, the going through, the, it, it is still a grief and acceptance and a loss process. Yeah. And then, you know, just that, worry that are they going to be you know okay because yeah. you no parent wants their child to have any sort of <laughs> hardship whatsoever you know that's your whole yeah. you know you want your kid to have the yeah. best well and, so. and you bring like i think about um this came to my attention through this other workshop i was doing there was a woman in the south and her adult child had just come out and like deep south and i i didn't really get to uncover it because of time but I just got the feeling that, you know, this was like the deep South, heavily Christian, um, and very difficult to deal yeah. with that and not, not a lot of support um, and not a lot of funds as well. So I just, I, I think to your point, like, you know, it would, it would be great to, if, if we can have a time where there's, you know, more support available everywhere and also just more education everywhere. So I do think we'll get there. But like I said, I think it'll probably be in our kids' kid, in our grandchildren's right. lifetime. Right. Which you know. we're not in any rush for. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah. no. Or maybe sooner, maybe sooner. I, I yeah. Let me correct myself. Maybe sooner. Yeah. I think it'll take a little time. I yeah. think so too. Wow. So where can we find, I know you ha have some stuff out there. Do you have like a website where we yeah, can find I, you? I have a website, pariahisuri.com, just my name, which is easy. So that has... Um, it has a link to any articles I've written, or if I do a podcast, like this will go on there. Yes. Your social media I, links. Yeah, my social media, my um, Instagram and Twitter, 
Um, I'm pretty frequently on, I'm pretty active on Instagram, like a 12 year old girl. There's a part of me that's still a 12 year old girl on Instagram and I make no apologies for it. Um, so yeah, so Parya.hasuri.com has links to my Instagram, which is LA Parya and my Twitter and all my articles. And people can also, uh, sign up, um, to subscribe for a newsletter, which rarely goes out like a few times a year, but if I publish something, I'll say, okay, like I published this, or this is what's happening with my book and Perfect. You know, things like that. Perfect. So, yeah. I'd love to include your, um, is it LA Times or New York Times that's coming out tomorrow? Uh, LA Times is coming out Wednesday, probably. Yeah. Maybe yeah. I can include that in my yeah. newsletter this yeah. month, if that's okay with oh, you. absolutely. And just, yeah, yeah because yeah. I think that's so amazing. And yeah. just to get the word out and more yeah. education. Yeah. So, okay, cool. So we know where to find you. Yeah. And where are you in the book process? My book is tentatively, the title is uh, Found in Transition. And I have an agent and she's certainly so nonfiction. I didn't, all this is new to me, but sure. for, um, for a memoir or nonfiction, you write a nonfiction book proposal. So my proposal is currently at 10 different publishing houses. <laughs> so oh, I'm doing <laughs> being a little reviewed publishing by dance. editors. Publishing dance. So this that's sort of the phase I'm in. Like just, just two, maybe a week and a half ago, we sent it out to the first, first round of people. Um, and there's been Good interest, it seems so far. So that's a good, so that's um, good news there. Um, but the first draft is completely written. So hopefully, once all that settles, maybe it'll go fastish. I don't know. Oh, we'll yeah. see. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. I I did write the entire first draft before I made a nonfiction so proposal. Yeah. So, um, so that's really exciting, and it sort of you know um, has like the the A story is Ava's transition, but the B story is really my evolution and bringing back my past and how my past sort of colored this whole thing. Yeah. Um, and really how I had to grow up through the entire process. Yeah. Wow. You're a remarkable person. I'm so honored to know you. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. I, I love what you're doing. I oh, mean, I thank think, you. you know, I mean, I'm jealous that you get to just sit down and talk with other it's so awesome. moms because there's so many moms doing so many so amazing many things. Awesome moms. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think it was, I was reading an article in New York Times a couple months ago and Gwyneth Paltrow was being interviewed and she said, ask a working mother to do it, you know? And I, again, like back to the stay-at-home mom, like I don't like that term. I don't, I feel like all mothers are working mothers. Absolutely. I really, really, Every really single do. one, yes. There's no working or non-working. It doesn't right. matter whether you go to a traditional right. job or whether you're home with your toddlers, you are a working mother. Absolutely. So. Yeah. She said, ask a mother, working mother to do it, which to me, the yeah. translation is ask a mother to do it and that shit will get we'll done. Get done. <laughs> she yeah. said, I'm quoting yeah. her. And I'm yeah. like, you know what? Damn straight. Right. Yeah. It's so true. Yeah. So uh, so we've come to the time when I'm going to ask you three questions that okay. I ask every guest. And then I'm going to ask you a lightning round okay. of fun questions. What do you think about when you hear the word MILF? I mean, I have sort of this love-hate with MILF. You know, a lot of people do. Yeah, because I do think of it as more of a mother I'd like to follow, which to me is really a mother who's investing time in herself. and figure. I mean, that's what I find attractive is a mother who's investing time in herself and figuring herself out. But at the same time, I don't want to, I don't want any mother to feel like, there shouldn't also be this pressure to be this amazing person that's going to impress other people that people want to follow, you know? Yeah. So it's so, it's so, I have yeah. like so yeah. many conflicting feelings Absolutely. about it. But in general, I think of it as a mother who is, who hasn't lost herself, 
Mm. And maybe that's because I had a period when I lost myself and I had to find myself. So I think of, you know, any mother who hasn't really lost herself and is pushing herself and figuring it out is mm. is what I admire. I love that. Yeah. I love that. What's something you've changed your mind about recently? A lot of things, but I would say just recently I about death row maybe because recently I read uh, this book, Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson, Ooh. which I don't know if you've heard about. No, but I haven't. It's basically about this lawyer who goes to Alabama and starts defending all these people on death row who are there for absolutely no reason. It's sort of like when they see us, the Netflix documentary, it's the same kind of thing where you just realize how much corruption is in the system. It's horrible. horrible. So yeah. So right now I would say Mm. death row. Mm. (laughs) How do you define success? I think I define success as trying, even if there's a very hard, like, even if there's a big chance you might fail. Yeah. Okay. Lightning round of questions. Ocean or desert? Ocean. Favorite junk food? French fries. Oh my God. Mine too. Yeah. Yeah. Any, I mean, as long as they're not soggy, they got to be crispy, but I mean, I just went away this weekend for my son's birthday. I think I had literally, it was three nights. I think I had 10 different orders of French fries. Yes. I'll never say no to fries. Me neither. Yeah. Movies or Broadway show? Movies. Daytime sex or nighttime sex? Uh, She's wincing. Daytime. (laughs) Daytime. (laughs) Texting or talking? Neither. (laughs) Silence. Uh, No, I'm just like, let's meet in person. Yes, 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 yes. Like send me a quick text so we can set a date to meet in person. But not like, not a back and forth text conversation and not a phone call. Yeah. Yeah. I've become the same way. Like I really just, I'm I'm very... I've learned I'm very, um, what's it called? Analog. Mm-hmm. Like, I just can't, yeah. I, I, yeah, I need that yeah. in-person thing. Um, cat person or dog person? Cats. Have you ever worn a unitard? Maybe in, like, ballet fifth or sixth grade or yes, something? Yes, yes, yes. Sixth grade? Shower yeah. or bathtub? Shower. I hate a bath, actually. <laughs> I had a guest who said, ugh, shower. She yeah. said, I don't want to sit in my own filth. No. <laughs> I just can't relax. I can't, like, yeah. I can't relax. I start thinking about all the things I'd like to do. I sure. just, I can't. Yeah. <laughs> ice cream or chocolate? That's hard, but I'm going to go with ice cream. And it is, as we're recording, it's like 95 degrees yeah. outside. Maybe not that hot, yeah. but it's pretty hot. On a scale of one to 10, how good are you at ping pong? Uh, one, <laughs> if that. What's your biggest pet peeve? Tardiness. Oh, I'm glad I was just on yes. time. <laughs> yeah. In fact, funny. I was like one minute late and I was like, oh, I'm one minute late because I parked yeah. at 2.44 yeah. after you gave me explicit instructions. Yeah. I was like, oh, and I'd unloaded and then I got in my car, drove up the block and then, yeah, I'm, I'm glad. Okay. Yeah. I'm always on time too. Yeah. I'm usually early. If you could push a button and it would make everyone in the world 7% happier, but it would also place a worldwide ban on all hairstyling products, would you push it? Yes. I'm not. I hate hair products anyway. So yes. (laughs) Superpower choice. Invisibility, ability to fly, or super strength? Super strength. Would you rather have a third eye or six fingers on each hand? Oh my gosh. That's really hard. I'll go with the fingers. Right? Because you yeah. could use those in your work. Like yeah. hold an extra pen here well, or there. I mean, it's just, I feel like a third eye on a face would be so distracting. True. But, yeah. That's true. Yeah. 
But six fingers would be distracting yeah. for, for a minute, and yeah. then it would be, yeah. Yeah. What was the name of your first pet? Uh, Snoopy. Oh. Yeah. What kind of what kind of it pet was a was black it? and white rabbit? Oh, <laughs> yeah. that's so cute. What was the name of the street you grew up on? Uh, I don't remember the first street, but I guess the first one I remember was Ridgefield in Pittsburgh. Yeah. So your pole dancer name or yeah. your porn name or whatever yeah. you want to call it is Snoopy, Snoopy Ridgefield. Ridgefield. I mean, that could be intriguing, right? <laughs> I think she's kind of a baller. Yeah. I can see her just like throwing down some sick moves. Yes. She may do some hip hop up there on the stage. Yeah. Paria, thank you so much. Thank you. What a treasure. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening, guys. I really hope you enjoyed my conversation with Paria. Join me next week for a fresh episode of MILF Podcast. And in the meantime, don't forget to head over to Clutch Gifts and use your exclusive MILF discount. 15% off with the code MILF15. Until then, I love you. Keep going.